You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 3, 13 4:17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to be fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and we have paused our study in the Gospel of John that we've been going through for the last several weeks. And we are pausing to focus on what we sense that God is calling us to step into this year in 2023, our, our, uh, our vision for this year. And if you hear last week, you heard that, that our vision is to be more missional as a church. We're six years old now. And I think for a long time, we've been building healthy infrastructures here, and that's been really good. Sound doctrine, we have that spine. But I think one area that we could grow in and, and we haven't hit our, realized our potential in yet is to be missional as a church. And so what we found out last week as we studied uh, in the Gospel of John, actually, was that God is at work all around us. Like, imagine you at work. Imagine your family. Imagine your friend group. What? Wherever God has placed you, just know that God is at work around you. And when you share the gospel, when you speak of Christ, you are either sowing seeds of the gospel or you are reaping, you are reaping a harvest that others have sowed beforehand. That's our only options when it comes to evangelizing. 
and sharing the gospel, sharing the hope that we have in Jesus. We're either sowing or reaping, and God is at work all around us. Jesus says to his disciples, look up and see the harvest. It's not coming in the future. You don't sit on your hands and just wait for it to come to you. He says the harvest is right here, right now. It's upon us. And so truly, God is at work all around us, and we as his people are invited to step into that vision, step into that reality that God is already preparing and tenderizing hearts to hear what you have to say about him. And so that's our vision for this year, to be more missional as a church. That's our ambition this year. So that's going to appeal to you if you call Citizens Church your home, if you are here and you're a confessor of Christ. Uh, this this uh, emphasis really, I hope, resonates with you. If you're here, though, and you're, you're not quite a Christian yet. You're maybe on the outside looking in. You're investigating the claims of Jesus. You're, you're curious about what he teaches and, and what Christianity is all about. This might, what I'm about to say might be the most important thing that I say in this entire sermon for you, and it's this. The reason why we're focusing on mission, on evangelizing, on sharing our faith is because we believe we have the best news of all. Everybody in the world has a faith. Everybody in the world has a perspective on life that they think is the good news. We think we have the best good news of all, which is that we can be really forgiven. Uh, We have broken God's law. We have preferred separation from him. We have destroyed ourselves. We have hurt others. We have harmed others. We have disregarded him. We are at odds with God. We are separated from him. And when we build our lives on our own autonomy, getting what I want, living how I want, according to my own morals, according to my own lordship, what happens is we are preparing ourselves for the future that we're going to have forever. What hell is, Hell is God granting you your heart's wishes to be separated from him. You've been building your life on that your whole entire life, and hell is going to be the ultimate realization of your heart's desire to be far from him. But the good news of the gospel is that does not have to be your destiny, and that that doesn't have to be your situation. Jesus was sent to die for us, atone for our sin, fully absorb the judgment of God so that we can be given his righteousness, his perfection, so we can stand before our almighty God and creator and be reconciled and be seen as nothing less than the very righteousness of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's even better because he's coming back. He's going to ransom us and save us from this broken and distorted age that we live in. And so we have hope. We can suffer. We can, we can endure Because we know that the 70, 80 years we have on this earth is really just preparing us for an eternity with him. That is our hope. And so that's what we offer you today if you're here and you're seeking. We want you to know that's the good news that we're talking about, being on mission for and proclaiming. Uh, So what I want to do now, okay, is I want today to be a focus on what is going to be the, the... Thing that might derail you and I? What's going to be the thing that might get in the way of us stepping into this vision, stepping into our mission as a church? And actually, I want to look at Jesus because I think he models for us what our mission is, but also models for us what we should expect to face and how we're going to get through it, okay? So three things we're going to see today in our passage. Jesus's grand mission, the devil's timeless resistance, but Jesus' radical strategy, his radical counter-resistance to the devil's onslaught. And so that's what we're going to see today. Before we go ahead and study that, let's bow our heads, ask God 
to be with us and teach us. Father God, we proclaim now and acknowledge that you are King of all kings and Lord of all lords, that you are sovereign, that you are just, that you are mighty. We come to you, God, asking that you help us see a harvest. We're not asking you, God, for anything that isn't what your will is. You want to see the nations come to you. Your heart is for the lost. You want to see people transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, God, would you help us to come alongside you and work with you in what you're already doing? You've prepared conversations. You've prepared hearts. You've prepared the way forward, God. Help us to walk in it. So equip us, Lord. Encourage us. Give us your eyes to see what you see all around us. And God, help us to withstand the devil's temptation. Help us to withstand the gauntlet that he wants to put us through to discourage us and to distract us from the possibilities that are found in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing the devil is going to do is he's going to distract you with uh, this fuzziness going on. So you're going to have to focus today, okay? Focus, eyes up here, all right? So first, Jesus' grand mission, okay? So I want, I'm not going to preach every single verse of this passage. There's a ton here. Uh, I wanted you to read it. I wanted to read it so we got the full context, but I want to notice some details. So I'm going to fly over some details here. They're really important. They show us what Jesus' mission is. So first notice that in the story, Jesus comes to the Jordan River. That's where he comes to be baptized. And the Jordan River is really important. This location is really important because this is the river that Israel crossed to enter into the promised land. You remember the story that for 40 years, one generation died off before they could enter into the the land that they were going to inherit to be their home, their promised land. And so what Israel, this new generation did is they crossed over the Jordan River into that promised land. But in Joshua 3, if you go back and read it, what God did is he halted the waters in the Jordan River so they could cross over on dry ground safely. It really is like an echo of what God did at the Red Sea with the original generation of Israelites when they left Egypt to go into the promised land originally. God halted the waters in the Red Sea so they could walk over safely on dry ground, and that's what God does in the Jordan River the second time around. So just notice that this location it has heavy associations with Israel's story, with their identity, with who they are as a people. This location is really important. Don't gloss over it. It has everything to do with who they are as God's children. But then Jesus is baptized, and he says this in verse 15, "'Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness.'" So Jesus, in this act of getting baptized— he says, is uh, fulfilling something that achieves righteousness. This act is realizing something that's going to bring about righteousness or realize some kind of righteousness. So what does this mean? We'll find out. We have to keep on reading for it to make sense. It'll become obvious as we keep going. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, it says, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So remember, Matthew is writing this gospel. Matthew, his his audience that he's primarily uh, trying to appeal to is the Jewish audience. That's who he's writing to. And so you have to ask yourself, what would a Jewish reader, what would a Jewish thinker be thinking about as they read this instance where Jesus comes up from the water and and the heavens split open and 
The Spirit of God descends like a dove from above. What would they be thinking of? And what they would immediately be drawn to is Isaiah 64. Isaiah, Isaiah 64 opens up and says this, O oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what Isaiah 64 opens saying. But why, do, why does the people of Israel ask that? Why do they cry out, God, split the heavens and come down? Verse 5 tells us why they want this to happen. It says in verse 5, Isaiah 64, verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned and our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved. So God split the sky here to meet the one who is righteous, to confirm who is righteous and at the same time answer this plea, God save us. So all at once, this is realizing what Isaiah 60, 64 is anticipating, that there's going to be a righteous person, and this righteous person is going to be the same person who saves them, who saves them out of their sin. So here's God from heaven, splitting the sky, his spirit descending, coming to rest on Jesus, confirming that Jesus is the righteous one who will save God's people. And then, in verse 17, this is what he hears. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, question, do you know who else is called God's son in the storyline of the Bible? We often read that phrase, that title, God's son, and we gloss over it because we've heard it all of our lives, but it's very, very significant. God's son in the Old Testament, a number of people are called God's son, but you know who is particularly? The nation of Israel. In Hosea 11, God calls them his son. So the title is significant because a son, think about the title son, a son represents the father. A son can mediate the father to others. What God is saying is that Israel represents him, mediates him to the world. Yet, if you're noticing, all of these historical associations with Israel, Jesus is assuming. Jesus is taking them on. It's almost like he's taking on the identity, the role, the story of Israel. It seems like Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is this new Israel. He's at the Jordan. That's important. He's the answer to their prayers in Isaiah 64, and he's given their same title. But now what Jesus does next shows this point even clearer, that he is the new Israel, that he's stepping into the storyline, into their pattern. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What happens next? It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, question again. Who else in the storyline of Scripture spent a 40-something period of time in the wilderness where they were tested? Deuteronomy 8 says this to Israel. God says to them, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness for the purpose. Here's the purpose, why God put them through that 40-year testing. It's because he wanted to verify whether or not they were truly sons truly representatives of him to the watching world. Is Israel going to be the son they were destined to be, to represent him and mediate him to the nations? 
And of course, what we know from the storyline is they did a terrible job at this. They did not live up to the title. They did not live up to, they did not rise to the occasion. They were not faithful as sons. They were not righteous. They were not just. They repeatedly showed they were like the prodigal son, more interested in God's stuff than him. They wanted his promise. They wanted his blessing, but they did not want covenant relationship with him. But Jesus is now doing this. He's undergoing a micro version of their story, a 40-day testing just like they did in the wilderness. But what we're supposed to see is that Jesus is being verified to see whether or not he is the son that never was, whether he is in fact truly the new Israel, whether or not he really is going to live up to this title as son. Is he going to represent Is he going to mediate? Is he going to be the righteous one that Israel never was? And notice that Matthew writes that Jesus was led into the wilderness. This isn't his idea primarily. This is God's idea. And Jesus is obeying. God wants to validate that Jesus is in fact the true and better Israel. And Jesus obeys because he knows that that is his mission. That is his purpose, to be what Israel never was, a faithful representative of God who will mediate God to the world via his righteousness so that they are saved, so that others are saved. So Jesus, he passes this 40-day trial, this micro version of Israel's testing. He passes, and it's not accidental or coincidence that coming out of the wilderness in verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So if you're tracing what Jesus is doing here, he's baptized in the Jordan. That happened to Israel. He enters the wilderness. That happened to Israel. He's tested for 40 days. That happened to Israel. What happens after that generation of Israelites endures the wilderness? They enter the promised land, right? So what Jesus do here after he endures the testing in the wilderness? He comes and brings the promised land. The kingdom of God, this is the real promised land, the true promised land. Jesus is saying, I am verified as the real son of God that never was. I, unlike Israel before, can invite you into God's presence. I can invite you into his shalom, his peace, his security, his rest, his salvation. That's what Jesus means when he says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. He has come to bring about the righteousness that never was, that Israel always compromised on. It can never transfer to anybody else, never give to anybody else because they were not truly God's son. Only Jesus is. And so now he is inviting them, all people, back into the promised land, into their full salvation, the true promised land. So what's Jesus' grand mission? It's to overturn the curse of sin and fully redeem a people for God by representing God and mediating him to the world. But I want you to notice that Jesus is doing this by stepping into a pattern. Jesus is doing this by stepping into a legacy and fulfilling it, stepping into someone's role, into a mission. Now, here's my question. Um, Did you know that this is our same pattern too? That what we observe Jesus doing here, this sequence of events, is now similar to our pattern, our sequence of events that we're stepping into as Christians. Look at 1 Peter 2. It says this. This is really interesting. It says, But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is all Israelite language. That's all language that was applied to the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, and now it's given to those of us who call upon Jesus. It's like we are now the new people of God, the covenant people of God, the new and true Israel. And it says this, keep reading, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. There's our mission to proclaim how excellent he is. Why? Because he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's sort of a throwback or a reference to the Exodus, that Israel was in darkness and slavery in Egypt. God released them from that and brought them into the light, brought them into the promised land. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. This is Israel's story, and this is now our story. God has changed us, and he has now sent us, commissioned us to declare his excellencies to anybody who will listen. But that's not all. Keep on reading. He says, Beloved, I urge you as what? This is so cool. Sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's like the same wilderness experience that Israel and Jesus had. We now have. We are sojourners. We are wanderers in the wilderness before we reach our full promised land in the kingdom that is to come. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your glory, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see, Jesus' mission, it's our mission now. Now Jesus has fulfilled the legacy. He has brought about the kingdom. He has initiated the kingdom, but we are now called to step into it, to carry on the legacy, to step into this pattern and Just like Israel was supposed to and just like Jesus successfully did, we now represent the Father to the world. We now mediate the Father to the world through our words and through our life. What a call to step into the very legacy that Jesus has cemented. This is the call upon your life to step into his story. So Jesus, he's inviting us to do something incredible, to be on mission, to mediate God to the world. So that's Jesus' grand mission, and it's also ours now. But before um, Jesus went about preaching the kingdom, inviting people into that, that promised land, the peace of God, you'll notice what? That he faced resistance from none other than the devil himself. He faced the onslaught of the devil's temptation and lies and schemes so that Jesus' mission might be compromised, that it might never get off the ground. But what I want you to see is that the devil's assault on Jesus here is timeless, meaning it's the same old scheme, the same old tricks, his one-trick pony that he has, okay? (laughs) We believe the devil's real, okay? I know in our enlightened culture, since the enlightenment, in our individualistic culture, we trust modern technology and science. But globally and historically, people have understood that there's a very thin line between the material and the immaterial. <laughs> that, that there is actually a spiritual realm behind everything we see, and it actually has a consequential relationship with how things play out in the real world. So we do believe the devil's real, and here he is, but he's using his same old schemes. In fact, what you'll notice, if you really think about it, is the same uh, tactics of the devil here that is being used against Jesus is the same tactic that 
the devil, even used in the Garden of Eden. So here is his timeless resistance. Do you want to know what his scheme is? He appeals to our natural desires with lies. He appeals to our natural desires with lies. That's what he does to Jesus here. Now, clarification. Jesus does not have indwelling sin. Jesus is not born with a polluted nature like we are because we're born in Adam. We inherit his guilt and his sin nature. But Jesus is human. And so Jesus has longings. Jesus has desires. Jesus has everything that we have in our human nature. And that is what the devil attacks. <laughs> we better listen. We better listen because we're at even a greater disadvantage. Because <laughs> not only do we have human desires, but those, those human desires are all aggravated by sin, intensified by sin. So we're even more easy. We're even easier to pray, you know, easier, easier to believe his lies. So uh, he appeals to our natural desires with lies. In fact, we read in our congregational reading in 1 John, what, what are the categories here that that devil uh, will appeal to? 1 John 2 says that he appeals to the lust of the flesh. That's our need for gratification, for bodily pleasure, bodily gratification. He appeals to the lust of the eyes. That, that's the, the need for more, the ability to understand potential and see possibility. And lastly, the pride of life, autonomy, expression, uh, um, no limits, freedom. Now, when you hear lust, another word, way to describe that is desires. These things fundamentally aren't necessarily wrong. We have bodily cravings. We understand that there could be more out there. We have ambition. These things are not wrong in and of themselves, but our indwelling sin comes alongside and corrupts these things and distorts these things. But these things reside in Jesus at a human nature level, and that is what the devil assaults. And so just think about this, okay? This is his tactic over time. And I want to explain this thoroughly so you can analyze your own life accurately. The devil comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tempts their lust of the flesh with, it says, fruit that is good for food. So it's gratifying. It would gratify their hunger. And it says he tempts the lust of the eyes with fruit that is pleasing to the eye, it says in Genesis 3. It's something that they didn't have, but they could have. He tempts their pride of life with fruit that is, it says in Genesis 3, desirable for gaining wisdom. It would mean they would step into the place of God and make their own decisions and their own rules and this is what Jesus endures himself, these exact same categories. He tempts Jesus' natural desire to gratify hunger by telling him in verse 3, command these stones to be bread. He tempts Jesus' natural desire for more, his understanding that there could be more out there, possibility in verse 8 by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He tempts Jesus' natural desire for freedom by telling him in verses 5 and 6, for expression in verses 5 and 6, he tells him that he can be validated as Messiah apart from God. And in both the garden and with Jesus, the devil lies. He's feeding, appealing to those natural human desires, our sinful desires, with lies. He offers Adam and Eve what they want without consequence. That's what he tells them. He tells them they will not die, but what happens? Immediately, they experience spiritual death, which leads to physical death. And notice with Jesus, every temptation in this story begins how? How does the devil introduce every temptation? He says, if you are the son of God, then do this. Bow down to me. Command these stones. See, the devil is offering a way 
for Jesus to get what he has coming for him was only natural, but without the need for God, without the need to trust God, an alternative way for Jesus to realize his purpose apart from God. Ultimately, the devil wants to get us to believe that we can fulfill all our desires apart from God. Now, we must pause and ask, what's his angle here? Like, what's he trying to achieve by tempting Jesus and causing Jesus to misstep? Like, what would happen if Jesus compromised and just went ahead and gratified his desires? What would happen? Everything would be lost. The mission would be unsalvageable. He would make God out to be a liar. God has just proclaimed from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so if Jesus fails like Israel has before, then the whole mission is is in vain and futile. He makes God out to be a liar. liar. We are without hope. So literally, the integrity and success of the mission depends upon Jesus' ability to endure this testing. It would invalidate everything about Jesus, and everything would be lost if he caved. Praise be to God, he didn't cave. Praise be to God, he initiates the kingdom, becomes preaching the kingdom, says, come on, join me, unite yourself to me, and you can have everything that God uh, has promised in himself. The kingdom is advancing, and there's no stopping it, and the devil knows that. The devil knows that he has lost. He has been punched. The knockout blow has been given. He's falling to the mat, but he is going down swinging. So he knows he can't stop what's destined. He knows he can't stop what's been secured by the blood of Jesus, but he knows that he can distract you. And he knows that he can discourage you and derail you and cause you to miss out on the mission. Truly, the devil wants you to live with a sense of regret that this is your calling, this is your identity, this is your purpose, and you're not realizing it because you're a failure. That's what the devil wants. He wants to absolutely derail you. So let's review, okay? We have three things in common with Jesus. First, we have a mission just like he did. Second, we will meet resistance just like he did. Third, Jesus initiates the kingdom despite intense temptation and our participation in the kingdom's advancement. It will depend on how we respond to temptation. So how does Jesus endure? Because how Jesus endures is how we're going to endure. This is his mission he's inviting us into. We're going to face the same resistance. So how does Jesus push through he fasts. He fasts for 40 days. That's intense. He must mean business. The temptation must be very, very severe, very, very trying if he has to go to this length to fast for 40 days. And so I think it's safe to assume that Jesus, as he's fasting, he's praying, he's reading scripture, since there's many other instances where Jesus leaves his disciples, practices solitude. It's said that he's praying all night. He's in prayer all night. He's coming into this temptation that we're seeing, quoting scripture. So clearly he's fasting, he's praying, he's reading scripture. His strategy to endure temptation and ensure the mission goes forward is to purposefully abstain from food and instead practice spiritual disciplines. Friends, this is how we will be successful in our mission. A part of it 
is abstaining from food and instead practicing spiritual disciplines. If Jesus felt like this was really important to do, you better believe that we must believe that this is really important to do too. Otherwise, we will miss out. It all hinges on our ability to detect the devil's lies and counter his resistance. And so we need to fast. We need to fast. Now, this is pretty radical. This is a radical strategy because you would think if the devil himself showed up to Jesus and they're having this face-to-face battle, that Jesus would need all the food he could get, that Jesus would need to sustain himself as much as he could for this battle, but it's the complete opposite. He abstains from food. This tells us that fasting is a practice that empowers us even as it weakens us. See, we usually rely on willpower, don't we, when temptation comes? Flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. When we're tempted in these three categories, we usually rely on our willpower to somehow pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make it through, and that's not going to last very long. That's not an answer. It's not. But here's what we do do. We use whatever amount of willpower that we do have to put ourselves in position to access a power we don't have. Or in other words, we do what is in our control to access what is not in our control. So what is in our control? What willpower do we have? We can practice spiritual disciplines. I can't fill myself. I can't somehow pull a lever in heaven and grant myself all the spiritual power to resist the devil. That's God's job. He will do that. But what I must do is do what is in my control and in my responsibility to put myself in position to receive his power. And one of those things we do is we fast. We fast. Jesus is modeling that fasting in particular gives us access to the Spirit's power in a way that makes us resilient to the enemy's tactics. So what I want to spend the rest of our time doing here is exploring biblically what fasting is, why we fast, why it all hinges on this. And so I want to give you six reasons now why fasting, why fasting of all things helps us endure temptation. And you'll notice that these are in successive order, meaning you graduate from one to the next in the experience of fasting, and this is what's going to equip you with a resource to help you endure temptation so you don't cave and miss out on the mission. All right? So first, fasting shows us what controls us. See, when you fast, you'll think about food all the time. I think about Taco Bell when I fast, okay? It's the, devil, the devil's lie, okay? His tactic You'll be daydreaming about your favorite foods. And as you fast, a few things will become clear to you. All right. First, you'll realize how much food dominates your life. So much so that you'll find yourself walking into the kitchen to get food, even though you know you're fasting. It's muscle memory due to years of your hunger controlling you. And you'll notice that when and what you eat controls our decisions, your planning, your availability, your schedule, you'll notice how much food dominates your life when you fast. Second, hunger makes apparent, listen to this, that we are not creatures of logic. We are creatures of desire. We do not do what we think. We do what we want, first and foremost. Eating, (laughs) think about that. 
It's not a logical choice. Eating is a choice because you want a desire to be gratified. Third, hunger of all um, feelings in your body is the most prominent desire, the most frequent desire, the most felt desire, the most consistent desire of the flesh. But all other desires of the flesh are just like it. Therefore, hunger should teach us quite a bit about all of our other desires, okay? And since that's true, okay, if hunger teaches us about ourself and all of our other desires because it's the most felt, consistent, frequent desire, if that's true, then fourthly, if the stomach is never permanently gratified, then none of our other desires will ever be permanently gratified. Gratification, it's only ever temporary. Eating doesn't permanently make hunger go away and neither will gratifying any other desire. They always, always resurface. So this is actually articulated in the Bible, this connection between our stomach and our bodies. It says in Hebrews 12 this, See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he, was, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." The author of Hebrews wants us to see that the gratification of the flesh in our sexuality, which of course is what you think of when you hear lust of the flesh of all things, that is no different than Esau's gratification of his stomach. It's like when we commit sexual immorality, we are making the same mistake Esau did when he let his hunger get the best of him and he sold his birthright. We are allowing our flesh to dominate us. Truly, Hunger teaches us a lot about ourselves and what controls us. But then there's 1 Corinthians 6. It says this. This is interesting, I think. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul's quoting a common phrase in their culture. He says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So why is Paul jumping from talking about the stomach to now talking about our sexuality? Because gratifying the stomach is in the same arena as gratifying sexual desire. Because you will find out quite a bit about what controls you when you analyze your stomach and what you eat and, what, and how that dominates your life. And you'll begin to get clarity on how all of your other need for gratification dominates your life too. So truly, hunger should give us clarity on what controls us. So we get some clarity on what dominates us. But secondly, why we fast is because it reminds us then how much we need God and are filled by God. So it's like when we get this clarity about how how messed up we are, how insatiable our desires are. When we let that get real for us, at the same time what fasting does is it shows us that that desire is also a spiritual desire, that that tells us something about God. So I can think about God all I want, about how great He is, how satisfying He is, how kind He is, on and on, but our thinking is easy to disrupt, isn't it? We get distracted, we lose our train of thought, we get bored, we desire something that takes us away from thinking. But when we force ourselves to feel the pain of hunger, we are supplying ourselves with a way to acknowledge God on the basis of feeling, not thought. Because every time I hunger, 
or think about how badly I want food and I wish I could eat, I am reminding myself that this is how badly I need God and therefore how filling He is. So when we fast, this is interesting, listen here. When we fast, instead of our bodies being our enemy in our pursuit of God, which is pretty normal, it becomes our ally. Instead of our bodies nudging us towards sin, when we fast, our bodies nudge us towards God. Our bodies become a spiritual tutor to our soul. So this is why fasting is a really necessary spiritual discipline. Because there are times when thinking and focus alone will not be enough for us to draw near to God. We need the extra advantage of our bodies literally yearning for God. So in fasting, instead of trying to teach your body how much you need God, you're letting your body teach you how much you need God, okay? And if that's true, that this desire for food shows me that this is how much I need God, then a filling, satisfying meal must also then be a symbol for filling, satisfying relationship with God. This is why Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight yourself in him. Why Psalm 119 compares the law of God to sweet honeycomb. The Bible uses sensory language, taste bud language to describe a relationship with God. Fasting makes that hit home, makes you get that. Why God is like honey. Why God is like a feast. Why relationship with God is actually a satisfying experience, just like a meal might be. So, get some clarity. In that moment of clarity, I know I need God and how filling He is. But then also, at the same time, something else happens. Fasting, thirdly, creates space for the Spirit of God to do His job. So, instead of, instead of eating... I pray. Instead of eating, I read. Instead of eating, I journal. Instead of eating, I eat in a different way, right? I don't consume food for my body, but food for my soul. The time and space and attention I would give to food, which you'll find when you fast, adds up to a lot. The time and space and attention I'd give to food, I will give to God now. So just like food is an act of consumption, so is fasting. So when I, when I fast, okay, I'm concentrating all my efforts on being still and letting God search me. In Psalm 139, and saying this, Search me, O God, and know me. Test me. Know my thoughts. See, God, if there is any incorrect way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Fasting is a way to commit to that experience, taking time, stillness, to let the God who seeks, seek me deeply. The, the attention and energy I give to food, now I give to stillness with God. And I let the Spirit now do His job. What's the Spirit's job? Why do we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us? There's a lot of answers to that. But one of the reasons is because the Spirit literally transfers to us heaven's atmosphere. I mean, God's presence in heaven lives inside of us right now. And so His love, His peace, His assurance, His comfort, the Spirit's job is to push that deep down into every nook and cranny of our heart, every dry and weary part of our hearts, 
Fasting allows us to take the time to let the Spirit take God's truth and apply it to our wounds in a very personal way. And we usually use food, whether or not you know this or admit this, we usually use food as a distraction. You'll find when you fast that you'll feel all kinds of emotions that you've been ignoring and that you've been distracting yourself from because you don't have to face them because you're busy eating. And so now what you're doing when you create space for the Spirit to do His job is you're letting God actually deal with you on the things that you've been putting aside for a long time. You're committing to letting the Spirit, giving the Spirit space and authority to do what He's purposed to do in us, to apply God's truth, not in a superficial way, but in a way that gives us really profound assurance. So I know now what controls me. I know I need God and how filling He is. I begin to act on that realization and let the Spirit do His job. And there's a few realizations that now come out of this, this practice of fasting. Fourth, fasting teaches us that we don't have to do what we feel. Did you know that? That you don't have to do what you desire? That you can actually change what you desire? Did you know that? That's what fasting teaches us. That's what fasting begins to do. Fasting reinforces that I don't have to do what I feel because we're choosing to feel hunger. We're choosing to feel the pain of fasting, but we're not fulfilling it. We're not gratifying it. I don't need to be enslaved to food. And if the stomach teaches me a lot about myself and what controls me, and that means that I don't need to fulfill any desire of my flesh. I don't have to fulfill any desire of my body. If I don't have to gratify my hunger, I don't have to gratify any of my other desires. I am not what I desire. I am not what I desire. I am more than that. You don't have to obey your... And I know we live in a time where it's, it's celebrated and it's just taken in unconsciously that you do you. And that, um, you know, you realize, you're, you express yourself and realize who you are. Fasting teaches us that that's not the case. You don't have to live by what you feel. There's a deeper version of yourself. There's a more real version of you than just simply what you feel. You don't need to gratify your desires. Fasting teaches us that. It trains us to believe that if you're angry, you don't have to act on that, actually. If you're sad... You don't have to give way to that. If you're insecure, you don't have to be determined and dominated by that. If you're pulled towards vegging and creature comforts, fasting teaches you that you can actually resist that. If you have sexual urges, you don't have to gratify them. If you're not at home in your own body, fasting teaches you that you don't have to realize that desire. When it comes to any desire of our bodies, we have a choice. And I know this sounds really basic, but when you begin to just say that over to yourself, I am not what I desire. I am not what I desire. I don't have to do what my body is screaming at me to do. Then you begin to have some freedom, a measure of freedom. Fasting teaches you that's possible to not be what you desire. You can be more than your desires. Now on your own, <laughs> you can only get so far. <laughs> but if we, again, use whatever amount of willpower that we do have, to practice spiritual disciplines, to get ourselves in space with God, in silence with God, to confront ourselves with, ourselves with His truth, He does the rest. 
Fifthly, similarly then, fasting also teaches us that we don't have to get what we want. We don't need to get what we want. And what I mean by this is practice, fasting is the practice of suffering, okay? So just like in high school, I had basketball practice every day before game so that I'd be ready when the real competition arrived. Fasting is practicing suffering for when it really comes. Fasting is simulating not getting what you want and being okay with it. Fasting is simulating life is unfair. Life has disappointments. You will suffer. It's, it, sometimes it's not okay. Fasting trains you to live a kind of life that teaches your soul that it's okay to not get what you want. It's okay that it's not fair. It's okay that you go without. Fasting teaches you that. So that when the enemy comes along, and he slips those lies into your flesh and tells you, look at them what they have. Don't you get that? God's holding you back. Look at what they have, and they're worse than you. Look at all you're doing for God. He doesn't love you. Fasting trains you to be okay not getting your base desires, not getting your version of the good life, not getting what you want. See, so, so fasting is this bodily acting out of being faithful with little so you're faithful with much. You're letting small times of testing confer to you a power that will come in handy when those bigger times of testing arrive. Another, another way to say it, smaller doses of fulfillment in God that fasting brings teaches us that there is a greater measure of fulfillment in God that comes when we suffer. It gives you a vision to understand suffering, that it's okay and there's a reason for it. There's deep fulfillment that comes at the end of it. Now, so we get clarity. We let God do his work on us. We practice that stillness. We learn a lot about ourselves, what dominates us. We teach ourselves. We let our bodies teach us how to endure suffering. Also that lastly, what happens? Lastly, what does fasting do? It teaches us to become more resilient over time. Like fasting, when you do it, it actually changes you. It, It really does this transform formative work inside of you. So all of us, okay, have deeply engraved patterns, dopamine reward systems, neural pathways centered around a need for physical satisfaction. Fasting breaks those default connections and reorients us towards a better way of life. Fasting rechannels our neurological pathways so that my new dopamine demand, okay, is literally the fulfillment that comes in the presence of God. That's what fasting does. It changes what we desire and changes our version of what fulfillment is. And so over time, what's going to happen is you'll be less controlled by desire and okay with not getting what you want because God is better and God is more appealing. And choices that we used to make or choices that used to be hard to make (laughs) are now easy. And your capacity to choose good over evil expands with every passing year. Fasting actually changes you at a deep, deep level. And you really become resilient. Not susceptible to the devil's age-old schemes to appeal to your human desires for fulfillment with lies. 
Jesus fasts 40 days to prove that he is the son so that he can go out and accomplish his mission. We are sons. We are children of God. We have a mission before us, and I'm telling you, <laughs> you might miss out on that grand purpose if you don't bring this spiritual discipline into your life so that your desires are changed, and so that you're more resilient against the devil's tactics. So, here's what we're doing tomorrow, okay? If you can, okay? You have to use discernment and wisdom as you make this decision. If it's physically a healthy, a good idea for you, uh, if, if it uh, will correspond to your work tomorrow, we're fasting tomorrow. I'm fasting tomorrow. And I invite you all to fast with me. And so after church today, uh, there's going to be an email sent out with a fasting companion guide that I wrote to go along with your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, you'll be spiritually feasting tomorrow instead of feasting on food tomorrow. And so I invite you to do this with me. And then tomorrow night at 7 p.m., we're going to gather here and talk about that a little bit and then pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest and that we would see a great thing happen before our eyes and our time. That's our plan tomorrow. And so check your emails. If you are not getting our emails I don't usually do this during a sermon, but I really want you to get on our email list so you can get that fasting companion guide. We're doing this as a church family because we have a calling as a church family to be on this mission together. And so I hope that you'll join us tomorrow. And if you can't do all three meals, try one. If that's too intense, too overbearing for you, just try one. If you don't do it at all, that's okay. Show up tomorrow at 7 p.m. anyway with, with the family. We'll pray together and celebrate what God is doing. Okay? So that's what I want to do. I want us to be on mission together. So therefore, tomorrow I want us to fast together. And let's see what God will do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more satisfying than the honeycomb. You are our great feast. You are the, what our soul cries out for, which our bodies give us evidence of. And so God, help us to withstand the enemy's schemes. Help us to step into this great calling of our life to be your representatives, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. God, I pray, I beg, and I plead that you'd empower us by your spirit tomorrow to take even one small step towards deeper fulfillment in you so that we might be more resilient, stronger to withstand the enemy's assault against us. God, we, we want to live a life that is worthy of our calling. Jesus, you have done so much for us. You've saved us, forgiven us, reconciled us. God, we want to live a life for you, for your glory and not for our own. Help us, God, we pray, and be with us. And Father, we are confident as we pray because we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.